Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus told his disciples that his peacemakers are blessed. It's one of those godly traits cultivated by the Holy Spirit in the heart, mind, and life of the Christian. But true biblical peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It isn't just maintaining the status quo. And being a peacemaker is not the same as being a pushover. Biblical peace is a broad state of health, wholeness, and flourishing as God's creatures in God's world. But sadly, our world lacks such peace do more than anything else to human sin and its consequences. But by faith in Jesus, sinners can have true peace with God, and by extension, with one another. And these same Christians are then given the privilege and responsibility to share God's peace with our fallen world through acts of mercy, justice, healing, service, And not to be forgotten, evangelism, just to name a few. Now, granted, our ability to make peace is limited. For true peace to be fully seen, Christ must return in power and glory. Nevertheless, we are called to make peace while we wait. And in doing so, we resemble our peacemaking God. But with all that talk of peace, it's easy to get a little bit, shall we say, overly optimistic. Even with all the qualifiers and nuances about our limited ability to make peace until Christ returns, we can still get a little full of ourselves. We may become convinced that as long as we obey Jesus's commands and embody the virtues laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, then things will go smoothly for us. We may even expect the world to embrace the presence of peacemaking Christians as some wonderful breath of fresh air. I mean, who wouldn't want to welcome the kind of people we've read about in the Beatitudes? We're humble, selfless, righteous, merciful, and pure. What's not to like about us? But if we're tempted by this excessive optimism to become like the character in Eleanor Porter's novel, Pollyanna, who only focuses on the positive and ignores the negative, then Jesus's last two Beatitudes should bring us back down to earth. Because even the most godly, winsome, And righteous disciple of Jesus can face opposition and endure suffering for their faith. But even in those difficult times, the consistent message of the Beatitudes remains. We are blessed. So open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use one of the Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take it home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word, your church, and your spirit. Thank you that we have the privilege of reading your word, that we don't have to speculate about who you are, that we don't have to guess about who you are, but that you've revealed to us who you are. And while we can't know everything there is to know about you, because you exceed our full comprehension in all of your glory, we still know a lot about you. We know more than enough about you to praise you. And so, Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for your son, the ultimate revelation of who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you that we can gather here together as siblings in Christ, as fellow believers in Christ, and despite our differences, call each other brother and sister. Lord, thank you that we are justified, righteous in your sight by faith in Christ and not by our own works. And thank you for the gift of your spirit who indwells us. I pray that your spirit would give us wisdom, give us attentiveness as we open up your word this morning. I pray that we would understand what your word has to say to us, and that even further than that, we would have the courage and the fortitude and the discipline and the desire to apply what your word has to say to us. I pray that you would give us all of those things by your spirit's power. And again, thank you for this church, not just this church. Your church goes far beyond this corner of 141st and Allisonville, but Lord, we're grateful for this church. Thank you for these people, this place, this time we have together. We pray that this church would do work that glorifies you and that that same would be true of all the other churches around us. Again, help us be attentive to your word today. Thank you for the time to pray, to sing, to hear from your word, to take communion, and to remind ourselves of who you are and who we are by your grace. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This eighth beatitude strikes a direct blow to one of our most common mistaken assumptions about the Christian life. Namely, the idea that as long as we live good lives, God will spare us from hardship. That's a form of what experts call moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD for short, is the idea that as long as I live a good life, that's the M, moralistic, then God will make me happy. That's the T, 
therapeutic, good feelings. And honestly, that's about all we need God for. That's the D. Deism is an idea that God is distant and removed and honestly not all that involved in the world that he made. But this assumption that if we just live good lives, then God will spare us from hardship also goes back to the errors that we think about when we hear the word blessing. We've talked about them in recent weeks. We don't want to reduce blessing in the Beatitudes or elsewhere in the Bible into God being manipulated to respond favorably by my actions. But with all that said, let's play devil's advocate for a moment. The assumption that if I live a good life, things will go well for me, is not totally without support. There is a real sense in which good things can and often do happen to those people who live righteous lives in obedience to God's commands and in alignment with God's design. After all, God gave his commands so that people would flourish. And if you don't believe me, just read the book of Proverbs. Much of that book is built on the assumption that, hey, if you listen to God, things will go better for you. And that is often true. But the problem arises when we assume that a righteous life will always inevitably, and necessarily lead to a peaceful, wonderful, carefree existence. That assumption is woefully naive. If we stop and think about it, it doesn't line up with our experience. And if we consider all that Scripture has to say, it doesn't line up with God's word either. But let's start with experience. Is it really consistently, obviously true that those who live good lives experience peace, prosperity? No. If that were the case, the phrase nice guys finish last would not exist. And we can all cite examples of when someone who does the right thing suffers for it. The one person with the courage to blow the whistle on a scandal often pays a heavy price before they get any kind of praise. Or the business person who's unwilling to go along with unethical practices often misses out on raises or promotions. I recently heard of a case where an adult became aware that a child was being sexually trafficked by her parents That adult took it upon themselves to remove the child from the situation due to the authority's lack of urgency. And that adult was then charged with kidnapping. Doing the right thing doesn't always lead to peace. So again, this assumption that living a good life means things will go well for us, that we won't suffer simply doesn't hold up under scrutiny. It's not hard to see in our everyday experience that it simply isn't true. But the Bible 
also gives plenty of examples of those who are righteous before God, suffering greatly. Turn to Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is immediately after Adam and Eve fall to sin in the garden. The story continues with this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What do you think Cain's going to do? Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Why do you think Cain murdered Abel? Was it anger towards God for refusing his sacrifice? Was it jealousy of his little brother? Or was it his own wounded pride? Now, maybe those all factored into Cain's decision, but the New Testament actually gives a different explanation for Cain's sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. The apostle writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain killed Abel because Abel was righteous And Cain wasn't. For John, it's as simple as that. He doesn't try to psychoanalyze Cain. He doesn't give the slightest suggestion that Abel somehow had it coming. John's explanation is as matter of fact as you can possibly get. Cain killed Abel because Abel was righteous and Cain was unrighteous. But there's also the story of Job to consider. The opening chapter of the book repeatedly describes Job as blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. One thing abundantly clear from the beginning of the story is that for whatever happens to Job next, it's not because he deserved it. Yet God allowed Satan to torment Job with unimaginable pain. And while, yes, God does vindicate Job in the end, the story is still a sobering reminder that God is not obligated to spare his people from suffering just because they're righteous. And, of course, 
There's one more slightly important biblical story involving a guy named Jesus. No one is more righteous than Jesus. Not Abel, not Job, not you, and not me. He's the sinless son of God. Yet Jesus suffers at the hands of others for the sins of others. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53:11, The righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous ones. If we don't have room for the hard truth that a good life doesn't guarantee a peaceful, wonderful, carefree existence, then we're going to have a hard time with biblical stories like Abel or Job. But worse than that, we're going to have a hard time with the biblical story of Jesus. So with all that said, this beatitude is about suffering. But it isn't just about the wide-ranging concept of righteous people suffering. Jesus talks about a specific form of suffering. That's persecution. One helpful definition of persecution is aggressive and injurious behavior carried out in a hostile, antagonistic spirit, normally by a group, and usually because of beliefs. That definition is helpful because it gives us a couple of important details. First, it tells us that persecution is not limited to extreme physical violence. It can also be social, mental, emotional, or economic. You can be ostracized from certain corners of society, verbally harassed, or prevented from making a living because of your religious beliefs. And it's all persecution. But second, persecution involves the motivation of the persecutors. A person can inflict hardship on you without doing it on purpose, and with no regard for what you believe. Intentional hostility towards your faith is a key ingredient in the recipe. And that gives us a chance to recognize that not every form of suffering a Christian endures meets the standards of persecution. If you get fired from your job, it may be persecution for your religious beliefs. Or it may be because of an industry-wide decline that has nothing to do with your beliefs. They're still suffering, but it's not persecution. If the IRS audits you, it may be because you're a Christian and you're being targeted. Or it may be because of one employee's incompetence. Again, not every instance of hardship in our lives as Jesus' disciples can be labeled persecution. But we should also notice Jesus' qualifier in Matthew 5, verse 10. There is a specific occasion when someone who's being persecuted is actually blessed. And that occasion is when they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. The word righteousness in the Bible can function in numerous ways. 
But here it's focused on behavior or conduct. Jesus is talking about people who are persecuted because they live in a way that honors God. Much like we saw with Abel in Genesis 4. That means that Jesus is not talking about those persecuted for unrighteousness sake. There's nothing blessed about that. The Apostle Peter hits at this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He asks, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now you might be thinking, well, Peter, actually a lot of people could harm me if I'm zealous for doing what is good. But let Peter finish. He knows that just as well as anybody. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Wonder where he got that from. Maybe Matthew 5:10. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than for unrighteousness' sake. So then, to this point, a few things have become apparent. Living as Jesus' disciples does not exempt us from suffering. More specifically, it does not exempt us from persecution. If anything, it might increase the likelihood. But not every form of suffering that Christians endure can or should be called persecution. And finally, Jesus' blessing is for those disciples being persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for unrighteousness' sake. So with all that said, let's get practical. How might this beatitude apply to us? What do we need to know? Well, first... While Jesus says that his disciples are blessed when they face persecution for righteousness sake, we should not seek persecution out. Now, that might sound like a no brainer, but I'm not so sure it is. After all, we live in a culture that rewards victimhood. And let's be honest. Sometimes we all like to make ourselves out to be martyrs because we think it makes us look good. It makes us look pious. People admire us. But in Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples to move on if a household doesn't want them there. A few verses later, he tells them to flee to the next town if they face persecution. Christians should be prepared to face persecution if and when it's unavoidable. But, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, we also seek peaceful and quiet lives, conducive to the church's mission of spreading the gospel, rather than going out and searching for a fight. But second, we should also know that 
Jesus' disciples do not assume that we will never face persecution. Now, sure, most of us have never experienced the most extreme forms of persecution. But that doesn't mean that we haven't experienced other, more polite forms of it. It also doesn't mean that the most sinister forms of persecution will never come. After all, as long as unrighteousness exists, as long as there are canes out there, until Jesus returns, people like Abel, workers of righteousness, are a threat. One author puts it this way. To live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven is to be set over against the rest of society, which does not share its values. And the result may be, indeed, the uncompromising wording of this beatitude suggests that it will be persecution. Or just take it from the Apostle Paul. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. This is Paul's final letter before he died. He's writing this to his young apprentice, you might say, Timothy. Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul sounds like a pretty righteous guy. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, Paul says that the Lord saved him from all of his persecutions. And that's true in a sense. Paul survived a lot of stuff, miraculously in some cases. But that doesn't mean that Paul didn't have his bumps and bruises. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. And he suggests that other followers of Jesus should expect suffering, persecution as well. As long as there are people who oppose God, whether it be the big bad media Hollywood or government, whether it be our own family, friends or peers, or even if it's Satan himself who persecuted Job, Christians should be prepared for the possibility of persecution because we're not exempt from it. And third, if we do face persecution for our faith, how do you think we should respond? We already saw Jesus instruct his disciples to flee persecution in Matthew 10. And lest you think that that is the coward's response, consider what happened early in the book of Acts. The disciples obeyed Jesus' words, fled persecution, went other places, and took the gospel with them. That persecution led to the gospel's spread as much as anything, because they fled. But we should also remember what Jesus will say later in Matthew 5. 
In verses 38 through 42, he tells us to literally go the extra mile to serve those who abuse us or take advantage of us. And in verse 44, he tells us to love our enemies. In that same verse, he tells us to pray for those who persecute us. And while we're on the subject, how should Jesus' disciples not respond to persecution? We do not cave. Jesus warns us against denying him on earth, lest we be denied in heaven. Nor do we fight fire with fire. Yes, Peter told us to make a defense for the hope that we have. That's absolutely true. But he also told us to do it with gentleness and respect rather than a heavy hand. We serve, we love, we pray in the face of persecution. And we make peace with the possibility of suffering. And of course, as we'll see in more detail next week, we count ourselves blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, is that hard to do? Of course it is. I tell you to ask Abel, but guess what? Abel's dead. And while Job survived his persecution, we also get some 35 chapters telling us just how agonizing his experience was. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat any of this. It's easier said than done to count yourself blessed when you're being persecuted. But none of that reality negates the promise that we hold on to. That the kingdom of heaven is ours. Not just far off in the future, but now. Matthew 10 tells us that as we endure persecution, at this very moment, we have the Spirit's help. We have the Son's salvation. And we have the Father's care. And while persecution can leave us feeling afflicted, perplexed, struck down, and wasting away, to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, we remember that the weight of glory we look forward to is beyond compare. We may not always feel all that blessed here and now, but when those hard times come, we latch on that much tighter to Jesus' promise that the kingdom of heaven is ours. So even when we have a less than peaceful existence as Jesus' disciples, specifically when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when we suffer for doing the right thing and living godly lives, we still seek first his kingdom. Persecutors may be able to take a lot away from us. They can rob Christians of their lives, though they cannot touch our souls. They can turn Christians' families and friends against them, though they cannot turn our God against us. They can steal Christians' treasure on earth, though they cannot steal our inheritance in heaven. So we press on. We count ourselves among those in Hebrews 10, verse 34, who endured. Why? Because they had a better possession, 
a better possession that we have too. We count ourselves among the ones who conquer in the book of Revelation because we look forward to the same reward that they'll have. And we count ourselves blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness sake. Because even if it feels like we're not in a good place right now, we will be in the best place, the kingdom of heaven in eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can gather right now in this place with little to nothing in the shape of persecution. Relatively speaking, we face very little opposition for our faith day in and day out. And we thank you for that. On the one hand, we recognize that that can make us a bit lazy It might make us a bit entitled. It might leave us a little bit unprepared for when times of persecution actually could arrive. But at the same time, we also don't want to romanticize persecution. There are those who say that the church would benefit from a bit of persecution. And I think those people might want to talk to those who are actually enduring it. So, Lord, we recognize the threats of not enduring persecution, but we also thank you for the gift of not enduring persecution. And I pray that we would use these times, these seasons, these eras of history when we're not being persecuted to prepare for those moments if and when we could be. And Lord, we also pray for those who actually are suffering persecution. For many people in our world, persecution is not a possibility It's not a hypothetical. It's reality. And so we pray for those believers who are suffering persecution for righteousness sake right now. I pray that you would give them strength, give them courage, give them endurance. Remind them that the kingdom of heaven is theirs right now, even when everything around them seems horrific. And encourage them through the promise that the kingdom of heaven will be theirs in eternity. And no persecution can take that away from them. Lord, again, thank you that even in the darkest of times, even in the worst possible scenarios of persecution, even, we can count ourselves blessed. Because as we said earlier, talking about the book of Ecclesiastes, there is more to life than just this life. Thank you for reminding us of that, especially when this life can feel disappointing. And can even be hard. Help us remember that we are still blessed as long as we have your spirit, as long as we are cleansed by your blood, as long as we are known and seen and heard and loved by our Father. Persecutors can't take that away from us. And so, Lord, in that sense, we are blessed. Remind us of that and prepare us for when we need to remember that, maybe even more than we do now. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.